Act One of The Castle Spectre by Matthew Lewis. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Castle Spectre, a drama in five acts, by Matthew Lewis. Dramatis Personae. Osmond, read by Nemo. Reginald, read by David Olson. Percy, read by Thomas Peter. Father Philip, read by Son of the Exiles. Motley, read by Todd. Kenrick, read by Patrick Seville. Saib, read by Sandra. Hassan, read by Kay Hand. Muley, read by Kieran Metz. Alaric, read by Recording Person. Alan, read by Craig Franklin. Edric, read by Eva Davis. Harold, read by Tony Addison. Chorus, read by Alan Mapstone. Angela, read by Leanne Yao. Ellis, read by Sonia. Evelina, read by Kalinda. And narrated by Chuck Williamson. Prologue. Far from the haunts of men, of vice the foe, the moonstruck child of genius and of woe, versed in each magic spell and dear to fame, a fair enchantress dwells, romance her name. She loathes the sun or blazing taper's light, the moonbeamed landscape and temptuous night. Alone she loves, and oft, with glimmering lamp, near graves new opened or minced dungeons damp. Drear forest, ruined isles, and haunted towers. Forlorn she roves and raves away the hours. Anon, when storms howl loud and lash the deep. Desperate, she climbs the sea rocks, beetling steep. There wildly strikes her harp's fantastic strings. Tells to the moon how grief her bosom rings. And while her strange song chants fictitious ills, in wounded hearts oblivion's balm distills a youth who yet has lived enough to know that life has thorns and tastes the cup of woe as late near conway's time-bowed towers he strayed invoked this bright enthusiast's magic aid his prayer was heard with arms and bosom bare eyes flashing fire loose robes and streaming hair her heart all anguish and her soul all flame swift as her thoughts the lovely maniac came i heaved her breasts which struggling passions rent as pressed to give some fear-fraught mystery vent and oft with anxious glance and altered face trembling with terror she relaxed her pace and stopped and listened then with hurried tread onwards again she rushed yet backwards bent her head as if from murderous swords or flowing fiends she fled. Soon as near Conway's walls her footsteps drew, she bade the youth their ancient state renew. Eager he sped the fallen towers to rear. T'was done, and fancy bore the fabric here. Next choosing from great Shakespeare's comic school, the gossip crone, gross friar, and jibing fool. These, with a virgin fair and lover brave, to our young author's care the enchantress gave, but charged him ere he blessed the brave and fair, 
to lay the exulting villain's bosom bare, and by the torments of his conscious show that prosperous vice is but triumphant woe. The pleasing task congenial to his soul, off from his own sad thoughts our author stole. Blessed be his labors, if with like success they soothe their sorrows whom I now address. Beneath this dome should some afflicted breast mourn slighted talents or desert oppressed. False friendship, hopeless love, or faith betrayed, our author will esteem each toil overpaid. If while his muse exerts her livelier vein, or tells imagined woes in plaintive strain, her flights and fancies make one smile appear on the pale cheek where trickled late a tear, or if her fabled sorrows steal one groan, which else her hearers would have given their own. Act One, Scene One, A Grove. Enter Father Philip and Motley. Never tell me. I repeat it, you are a fellow of a very scandalous course of life. And I repeat it, I'm a perfect image of the purest virtue, compared to whom, for sobriety and continence, Cato was a drunkard, and Lucretia little better than she should be. Oh, hardened in impudence, can you deny being a pilferer, a liar, a glutton? Can I? Heaven be thanked! I've courage enough to deny anything. Doesn't all the world cry out upon you? Certainly my transcendent merit has procured me some enemies, and, in common with many other great men, my virtue, at present, labors under something of a cloud. But understand me right, father. Though I don't assent to the sum total of your accusations, possibly I may acknowledge some of the items. The best actions frequently appear culpable, merely because their motives are unexplained. Therefore, produce your charges, let me justify my conduct, and I doubt not I shall retrieve my reputation from your hands, as immaculate and pure as a new sheet of foolscap. To begin, then, with your pilfering, did you, or did you not break open the pantry door and steal out the great goose pie? Begging your pardon, father, that was no fault of mine. Whose, then? The cook's, undoubtedly. For if he hadn't locked the pantry door, tis a hundred to one I shouldn't have taken the trouble to break it open. Nonsense! Nonsense! I tell you, you've been guilty of stealing, which is a monstrous crime. And what did you steal? Had you taken anything else, I might have forgiven you. But to lay irreverent hands upon the goose pie, as I'm a Christian, the identical goose pie which I intended for my own supper. But this is not my only objection to your conduct. No? What principally offends me is that you pervert the minds of the maids and keep kissing and smuggling all the pretty girls you meet. Oh, fie, fie! I kiss and smuggle them? St. Francis forbid! Lord love you, father, tis they who kiss and smuggle me. I protest I do what I can to preserve my modesty, 
and I wish that Archbishop Dunstan had heard the lecture upon chastity which I read last night to the dairymaid in the dark. He might have been quite edified. But yet, what does talking signify? The eloquence of my lips is counteracted by the luster of my eyes. And really, the little devils are so tender and so troublesome that I'm half angry with nature for having made me so very bewitching. Nonsense! Nonsense! Why, it was but yesterday that Cicely and Luce went to fisticuffs, quarrelling which looked neatest, my red leg or my yellow leg. Then they are so fond and so coaxing. They hang about one so lovingly. And one says, Kind Mr. Motley, and the other, Sweet Mr. Motley. Ah, Father Philip, Father Philip, how is a poor little bit of flesh and blood, like me, to resist such temptation? Put yourself in my place. Suppose that a sweet, smiling rogue, just sixteen, with rosy cheeks, sparkling eyes, pouting lips, etc. Oh, fie, fie, fie! To hear such licentious discourse brings tears to my eyes. I believe you, father, for I see the water is running over at your mouth. However, this shows you... It shows me that you are a reprobate, and that my advice is thrown away upon you. In future I shall keep those counsels to myself, which I offered you from motives of pure Christian charity. Charity, my good father, should always begin at home. Now, instead of giving yourself so much trouble to mend me, what if you thought a little of correcting yourself? I, I have nothing to correct. No, to be sure. The odour of my sanctity perfumes the whole kingdom. It has a powerful smell about it, I own. Not unlike carrion. You may wind it a mile off. Old malice! Not exactly. I could mention some little points which might be altered in you still better than in myself, such as intemperance, gluttony. Gluttony? Oh, abominable falsehood! Plain matter of fact. Why will any man pretend to say that you came honestly by that enormous belly? that tremendous tomb of fish, flesh, and fowl? I protest I'm grateful to heaven that among the unclean beasts who accompanied Noah there went not into the ark a pair of fat monks. They must infallibly have created a famine, and then the world would never have been repeopled. Next, foreign continents, you must allow yourself that you are unequaled. I? I? You. You! May I ask what was your business in the beech grove the other evening, when I caught you with buxom Marjorie, the miller's pretty wife? Was it quite necessary to lay your heads together so close? Perfectly necessary. I was whispering in her ear. Wholesome advice. Indeed. Faith, then, she took your advice as kindly as it was given, and exactly in the same way, too. You gave it with your lips, and she took it with hers. Well done, Father Philip. Son, son, you give your tongue too great a license. Nay, father, be not angry. 
fools you know are privileged persons i know they're very useless ones and in short master motley to be plain with you of all fools i think you are the worst and for fools of all kinds i've an insuperable aversion really then you have one good quality at least and i cannot but admire such a total want of self-love a horn sounds but hark tis the dinner horn away to table father depend upon't the servants will rather eat part of their dinner unblessed than stay till your stomach comes like jonah's whale and swallows up the whole well well fool i am going but first let me explain to you that my bulk proceeds from no indulgence of voracious appetite no son no little sustenance do i take but saint cuthbert's blessing is upon me and that little prospers with me marvellously verily the saint has given me rather too plentiful an increase and my legs are scarce able to support the weight of his bounties exit motley alone he looks like an overgrown turtle waddling upon its hind fins yet at bottom tis a good fellow enough warm-hearted benevolent friendly and sincere but no more intended by nature to be a monk than i to be a maid of honor to the queen of sheba going enter percy i cannot be mistaken in spite of his dress his features are too well known to me hist gilbert 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 oh lord that's i who calls have you forgotten me truly sir that would be no easy manner i have never forgotten in my life what i never do have ten years altered me so much that you cannot hey can it be pardon my dear master pardon in truth you may well forgive my having forgotten your name for at first i didn't very well remember my own however to prevent further mistakes i must inform you that he who in your father's service was gilbert the knave is motley the fool in the service of earl osmond of earl osmond this is fortunate gilbert you may be of use to me and if the attachment which as a boy you professed for me still exists it does with ardour unabated for i'm not so unjust as to attribute to you my expulsion from enwick castle in fact i deserved it for i cannot deny but that at twenty i was as good-for-nothing a knave as ever existed consequently old earl percy dismissed me from his service but i know that it was sorely against your inclination you were then scarce fourteen and i had been your companion and playfellow from your childhood i remember well your grief at parting with me and that you slipped into my hand the purse which contained the whole of your little treasure that act of kindness struck to my heart i swore at the moment to love you through life and if ever i forget my oath damn me my honest gilbert and what made you assume this habit ah my lord what could i do in spite of my knavery and tricks i was constantly upon the point of starving and having once contracted the idle habit of eating i never could bring myself to leave it off after living five years by my wits want drove me almost out of them 
I knew not what course to take. When I heard that Earl Osmond's jester had fled the country, I exerted my knavery for the last time in stealing the fugitive's cast coat, was accepted in his place by the Earl, and now gain an honest livelihood by persuading my neighbours that I'm a greater fool than themselves. And your change is for the better. Infinitely. Indeed, your fool is universally preferred to your knave, and for this reason. Your fool is cheated. Your knave cheats. Now everybody had rather cheat than be cheated. Some truth in that. And now, sir, may I ask, what brings you to Wales? Oh, a woman whom I adore. Yes, I guessed that the business was about a petticoat. And this woman is? The orphan ward of a villager without friends, without family, without fortune. Great points in her favour, I must confess. And which of these excellent qualities won your heart? I hope I had better reasons for bestowing it on her. No, Gilbert, I loved her for a person beautiful without art, and graceful without affectation, for a heart tender without weakness, and noble without pride. We saw her at once beloved and reverenced by her village companions. They looked on her as a being of a superior order, and I felt that she who gave such dignity to the cottage maid must needs add new luster to the coronet of the Persis. From which I am to understand that you mean to marry this rustic? Could I mean otherwise, I should blush for myself. Yet surely, the baseness of her origin. Can to me be no objection, and given her my hand, I raise her to my station, not debase myself to hers, nor ever, while gazing on the beauty of a rose, did I think it less fair because planted by a peasant? Bravo! And what says your good grumbling father to this? Alas, he has long slept in the grave. Then he's quiet at last. Well, God grant him that peace in heaven which he suffered nobody to enjoy on earth. But, his death having left you master of your actions, what obstacle now prevents your marriage? You shall hear. Fearful lest my rank should influence this lovely girl's affections, and induce her to bestow her hand on the noble, while she refuses her heart to the man, I assumed a peasant's habit, and presented myself as Edwy the low-born and the poor. In this character I gained her heart, and resolved to hail, as Countess of Northumberland, the betrothed of Edwy the low-born and the poor. I warrant the pretty soul wasn't displeased with the discovery. That discovery is still unmade. Judge how great must have been my disappointment when, on entering her guardian's cottage with this design, he informed me that the unknown, who sixteen years before had confided her to his care, had reclaimed her on that very morning and conveyed her no one knew whither. That was unlucky. Was it not? Ah! Had I declared myself one day sooner, ere this she would have been my wife. True, and being your wife, if a stranger then had conveyed her no one knew whither, you might have thought yourself mightily obliged to him. However, in spite of his precautions, I have traced the stranger's course, and find him to be Kenrick, a dependent upon L. Osmond. Surely tis not Lady Angela, who— The very same. Speak, my good fellow. Do you know her? Not by your description, 
for here she's understood to be the daughter of Sir Malcolm Mowbray, my master's deceased friend. And what is your present intention? To demand her of the Earl in marriage. Oh, that will never do. For in the first place, you'll not be able to get a sight of him. I've now lived with him five long years, until Angela's arrival never witnessed a guest in the castle. Oh, tis the most melancholy mansion. And as to its master, he's the very antidote to mirth. He always walks with his arms folded, his brows bent, his eyes luring on you with a gloomy scowl. He never smiles, and to laugh in his presence would be high treason. He looks at no one, speaks to no one. None dare approach him, except Kenrick and his four blacks. All others are ordered to avoid him, and whenever he quits his room, ding-dong goes a great bell, and away run the servants like so many scared rabbits. Strange! And what reasons can he have for? Oh, reasons in plenty. You must know there's an ugly story respecting the last owners of this castle. Osmond's brother, his wife, and infant child were murdered by Benditi, as it was said. Unluckily, the only servant who escaped the slaughter deposed that he recognized among the assassins a black still in the service of Earl Osmond. The truth of this assertion was never known, for the servant was found dead in his bed the next morning. Good heavens! Since that time, no sound of joy has been heard in Conway Castle. Osmond instantly became gloomy and ferocious. He now never utters a sound except a sigh has broken every tie of society, and keeps his gates barred unceasingly against the stranger. Yet Angela is admitted, but no doubt affection for her father. Why, no. I rather think that affection for her father's child. How? If I've any knowledge in love, the Earl feels it for his fair ward. But the lady will tell you more of this, if I can procure for you an interview. That very request which... Tis no easy matter, I promise you, but I'll do my best. In the meantime, wait for me in yonder fishing hut. Its owner's name is Edric. Tell him that I sent you, and he will give you a retreat. Farewell, then, and remember that whatever reward... Dear master, to mention a reward insults me. You have already shown me kindness, and when tis in my power to be of use to you... To need the inducement of a second favor would prove me a scoundrel undeserving of the first. Exit. How warm is this good fellow's attachment? Yet our barons complain that the great can have no friends. If they have none, let their own pride bear the blame. Instead of looking with scorn on those whom a smile would attract and a favor bind forever, how many firm friends might our nobles gain if they would but reflect that their vassals are men as they are, and have hearts whose feelings can be grateful as their own? Exit. Scene 2. The Castle Hall. Saib and Hassan meeting. Now, Hassan, what success? My search has been fruitless. In vain have I paced the river's banks, and pierced the grove's deepest recesses. Nor glen nor thicket have I passed unexplored, yet found no stranger to whom Kenrick's description could apply. Saw you no one? A troop of horsemen passed me as I left the wood. 
Horsemen, say you. Then Kenrick may be right. Earl Percy has discovered Angela's abode and lurks near the castle in hopes of carrying her off. His hopes, then, will be in vain. Osmond's vigilance will not easily be eluded, sharpened by those powerful motives, love and fear. His love, I know. But should he lose Angela, what has he to fear? If Percy gains her, everything. Supported by such wealth and power, dangerous would be her claim to these domains should her birth be discovered. Of this our lord is aware, nor did he sooner hear that Northumberland loved her than he hastened to remove her from Allen's care. At first I doubt his purpose was a foul one. Her resemblance to her mother induced him to change it. He is now resolved to make her his bride, and restore to her those rights of which himself deprived her. Think you the lady perceives that our master loves her? I know she does not. Absorbed in her own passion for Percy, on Osmond's she bestows no thought, and, while roving through these pompous halls and chambers, sighs for the Chavoy Hills and Allen's humble cottage. But as she still believes Percy to be a low-born swain, when Osmond lays his coronet at her feet, will she reject his rank and splendor? If she loves well, she will. Saib, I too have loved. I have known how painful it was to leave her on whom my heart hung. How incapable was all else to supply her loss. I have exchanged want for plenty, fatigue for rest, a wretched hut for a splendid palace. But am I happier? Oh, no. Still do I regret my native land and the partners of my poverty. Then toil was sweet to me, for I labored for Samba. Then repose ever blessed my bed of leaves, for there by my side lay Samba sleeping. Tis from you, Hassan? Did love ever find a place in your flinty bosom? Did it? Oh, Saib, my heart once was gentle, once was good. But sorrows have broken in, insults have made it hard. I have been dragged from my native land, from a wife who was everything to me, to whom I was everything. Twenty years have elapsed since these Christians tore me away. They trampled upon my heart, mocked my despair, and, when in frantic terms I raved of Samba, laughed, and wondered how a negro's soul could feel. In that moment when the last point of Africa faded from my view, when as I stood on the vessel's deck I felt that all I loved was to be lost forever, in that bitter moment did I banish humanity from my breast. I tore from my arm the bracelet of Samba's hair, I gave to the sea the precious token, and while the high waves swift bore it from me, vowed aloud endless hatred to mankind. I have kept my oath, I will keep it. Ill-starred Hassan. Your wrongs have indeed been great. To remember them unmanned me. Farewell, I must to Kendrick. Hold. Look where he comes from Osmond's chamber. And seemingly in wrath. His conferences with the Earl of late have had no other end. The period of his favor is arrived. Not of his favor merely, Hassan. How? Mean you that? His anxiety for independence his wish to withdraw himself from Wales, yet more certain mysterious words and threats for some time past have made our lord uneasy. By him was I this morning commissioned. Silence! He's here. 
you shall know more anon. Enter Kenrick. His promise ever evaded. My request still heard with impatience, and treated with neglect. Osmond, I will bear your ingratitude no longer. Now, Hassan, found you the man described? Nor any that resembled him. Yet, that I saw Percy, I am convinced. As I crossed him in the wood, his eye met mine. He started as had he seen a basilisk, and fled with rapidity. Be on your guard, my friends. Doubtless he will attempt to gain admission to the castle. Can we be otherwise than watchful when we see how well the Earl rewards his followers? Of that, Kenrick, you are an example. Have you obtained that recompense so long promised? Do you enjoy that independence which... Saib, the Earl's ingratitude cuts me to the heart. Attached to him from his infancy, I have long been his friend, long fancied him mine. The illusion is now over. He sees that I can serve him no further, knows that I can harm him much. Therefore he fears, and fearing, hates me. But I will submit no longer to this painful dependence. Tomorrow, for the last time, will I summon him to perform his promise. If he refuses, I will bid him farewell forever and by my absence free him from a restraint equally irksome to myself and him. Will you so, Kenrick? Be speedy, then, or you will be too late. Too late? And wherefore? You will soon receive the reward of your services. Ha! You know what that reward will be? I guess, but may not tell. Is it a secret? Can you keep one? Faithfully. As faithfully can I. Come, Hassan. Exeunt. Kenrick alone. What meant the slave? Those doubtful expressions. Ha <laughs> Should the Earl intend me false? Kenrick, Kenrick. How is thy nature changed? There was time when a fear was a stranger to my bosom, when guiltless myself. I dreaded not art in others. Now, wherever I turn me, danger appears to lurk, and I suspect treachery in every breast, because my own heart hides it. Exit. Enter Father Philip, followed by Alice. Nonsense, you silly woman. What you say is not possible. I never said it was possible. I only said it was true, and that if I ever heard music, I heard it last night. Perhaps the fool was singing to the servants. The fool indeed. Oh, fie-fie, how dare you call my lady's ghost a fool? Your lady's ghost? You silly old woman. Yes, father, yes. I repeat it. I heard the guitar lying upon the oratory table play the very air which the Lady Evelina used to sing while rocking her little daughter's cradle. She warbled it so sweetly, and ever at the close it went, Lullaby, lullaby, hush thee, my dear, thy father is coming, and soon will be here. Nonsense, nonsense! Why, pray thee, Alice! 
do you think that your lady's ghost would get up at night only to sing lullaby for your amusement? Besides, how should a spirit which is nothing but air play upon an instrument of material wood and catgut? How can I tell? Why, I know very well that men are made. But if you desired me to make a man, I vow and protest I shouldn't know how to set about it. I can only say that last night I heard the ghost of my murdered lady. Playing upon the spirit of a cracked guitar? Alice, Alice, these fears are ridiculous. The idea of ghosts is a vulgar prejudice, and they who are timid and absurd enough to encourage it prove themselves the most contemptible. <gasps> oh, Lord bless us! What? Hey, oh, dear! Look, look, a figure in white. It comes from the haunted room. Father Philip, dropping on his knees. Blessed St. Patrick! Who's got me beads? Where's me prayer book? It comes! It comes! No! No! Oh, lackaday! It's only Lady Angela. Father Philip, rising. Lackaday! I'm glad of it with all my heart. Truly so am I. But what say you now, father, to the fear of spectres? In good faith, Alice, that my theory was better than my practice. However, the next time you are afraid of a ghost, remember and make use of the receipt which I shall now give you. Instead of calling for a priest to lay the spirits of other people in the Red Sea, call for a bottle of red wine to raise your own. Probatum est. Exit. Alice, alone. <laughs> Wine, indeed. I believe he thinks I like drinking as well as himself. No, no. Let the old toping friar take his bottle of wine. I shall confine myself to plain cherry brandy. Enter Angela. I am weary of wandering from room to room. In vain do I change the scene. Discontent is everywhere. There was a time when music could delight my ear, and nature could charm my eye, when, as the dawn unveiled the landscape, each object it disclosed to me looked pleasant and fair, and while the last sunbeams yet lingered on the western sky, I could pour forth a prayer of gratitude, and thank my good angels for a day unclouded by sorrow. Now, all is gone, all lost, all faded. Lady! Perhaps at this moment he thinks upon me. Perhaps he wanders in those mountains where we so oft have strayed, reclines in that bank where we so oft have sat, or listens sadly to the starling which he taught to repeat my name. Perhaps then he sighs and murmurs to himself. The flowers, the rivulets, the birds, every object reminds me of my well-beloved. But what shall remind her of Edwy? Oh, that will my heart, Edwy. I need no other remembrancer. Lady! Lady Angela, she minds me no more than a post. Oh, are you there, good Alice? What would you with me? Only ask how your ladyship rested. Ill, very ill. Like a day, and yet you sleep in the best bed. True, good Alice, but my heart's anguish strewed thorns upon my couch of down. 
Mary, I'm not surprised that you rested ill in the cedar room. Those noises so near you. What noises? I heard none. How? When the clock struck one, heard you no music? Music? None. And never have heard any while in the cedar room? Not that I... Stay, now I remember, that while I sat alone in my chamber this morning... Well, lady, well? Methought I heard someone singing. It seemed as if the words ran thus. Lullaby, lullaby, hush thee, my dear. <gasps> the very words. It was the ghost, lady. It was the ghost. The ghost, Alice? I protest I thought it had been you. Me, lady? Lord, when did you hear the singing? Not five minutes ago, while you were talking with Father Philip. The Lord be thanked. Then it was not the ghost. It was I, lady. It was I. And have you heard no other singing since you came to the castle? None. But why that question? Because, lady, but perhaps you may be frightened. No, no. Proceed, I entreat you. Why, then, they do say that the chamber in which you sleep is haunted. You may have observed two folding doors which are ever kept locked. They lead to the oratory in which the Lady Evelina passed most of her time while my lord was engaged in the Scottish wars. She would sit there, good soul, hour after hour, playing on the lute and singing airs so sweet, so sad, that many a time and oft have I wept to hear her. Oh, when I kissed her hand at the castle gate, little did I suspect that her fate would have been so wretched. And what was her fate? A sad one, lady. Impatient to embrace her lord, after a year's absence, the countess set out to meet him on his return from Scotland, accompanied by a few domestics and her infant daughter, then scarce a twelve-month old. But as she returned with her husband, robbers surprised the party scarce a mile from the castle, and since that time no news has been received of the earl, of the countess, the servants, or the child. Dreadful! Why not their corpses found? Never! The only domestic who escaped pointed out the scene of action, and as it proved to be on the river's banks, doubtless the assassins plunged the bodies into the stream. Strange! And did Earl Osmond then become owner of this castle? Alice, was he ever suspected of... Speak lower, lady. It was said so, I own. But for my own part, I never believed it. To my certain knowledge, Osmond loved the Lady Evelina too well to hurt her. And when he heard of her death, he wept and sobbed as if his heart were breaking. Nay, tis certain that he proposed to her before marriage, and would have made her his wife, only that she liked his brother better. Well, she might indeed, for Earl Reginald was a sweeter gentleman by half. And in that oratory, you say, Good Alice, you have the key of it. Let me see that oratory tonight. Tonight, lady? Heaven preserve me. I wouldn't enter it after dark for the world. But before dark, Alice? Before dark? Why, that indeed... Well, well, we'll see, lady. But I hope you're not alarmed by what I mentioned of the cedar room. No, truly, Alice. 
From good spirits I have nothing to fear, and heaven and my innocence will protect me against bad. My very sentiments, I protest. Oh, but heaven forgive me. While I stand gossiping here, I warrant all goes wrong in the kitchen. Your pardon, lady, I must away. I must away. Exit. Angela, musing. Osmond was his brother's heir. His strange demeanour. Yes, in that gloomy brow is written a volume of villainy. Heavenly powers. An assassin, then, is master of my fate. An assassin, too, who... I dare not bend my thoughts that way. Oh, would I had never entered these castle walls, had never exchanged for fearful pomp the security of my pleasures, the tranquillity of my soul. Return, return, sweet peace, and o'er my breast spread thy bright wings, distill thy balmy breast, and teach my steps thy realms among to rove, wealth and the world resigned, not mine but love. Ah, cease thy suit, fond girl, thy prayer is vain, for thus did love his tyrant law ordain. Peace still must fly that heart, where I still reign. Exit. End of the first act.